the more you think about it, the more weird it is that we kind of categorise babies at birth based on the appearance of one of their body parts and then assign them this set of expectations, preferences, jobs and prospects based on something about as arbitrary as whether they have an innie or an outie belly button. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Today, we're getting better acquainted with Pandora Blake. Hello, Pandora. Hi, nice to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's great, great to have you here. The first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? How do I know you? So I think I know you through Smut Slam. Yeah. But I think you might have even emailed me before I met you at Slut Slam right. about doing this podcast. Yeah. And I kind of was like, oh yeah, that sounds interesting, maybe later, and then never got around to it. Right, I think you were in a really busy moment. Yeah, I, I always kind of... am in a really busy yeah, moment. Yeah. I just have to, I'm trying to get better organised so that I can <laughs> just sort of ride them out better. <laughs> yeah, I kind of met you-ish at a, a, a sex worker rights event, I All think. right. Um, and I think before that I'd seen you, I'd been in the same audience as you at the uh, Sex Worker Opera. Oh, um, cool. So I was, so you, you're very much on my radar and I've read a lot of your of your blogs and kind of, a, you know, I, I, I like what you have to say. Uh, but the first time we kind of properly met was, yeah, when you came and you, mm. you judged um, at a Smart Slam uh, earlier this year, yeah. um, which was great. And it was great to have you. Oh, it was such a good evening. <laughs> <laughs> I should say for, for listeners, Smart Slam is a true storytelling open mic about sex uh, that was created and generally is hosted by Cameron Moore. Uh, and it happens in London on the second Wednesday of the month uh, and at the moment it's being guest hosted by Miranda Kane and there we go that's that out of the way um, so yeah um, so yeah that's how we know each other the second question that I ask everybody is what do you do now so I do too many things I have a portfolio career that expands across porn making doing campaigning around the law affecting porn and sex work I'm a blogger I build websites for people I'm currently trying to finish up a contract with that and other creative cool stuff that I kind of feel like doing as well yeah run workshops teach sex education kind of traditional self-employed opportunistic patchwork really like whatever's going and seems fun and good value yeah. yeah, I have a portfolio career, I guess, myself, but less kind of with it. You, you're, you're more within one wheelhouse than I am, I think. But, but who knows? Like, mm. I may find out that's not true right? <laughs> through, the, through, the, through the process of this conversation. So you're, you're a porn performer. When did that happen for you? Oh, I had my 10-year anniversary last year, <laughs> so it's 11 years now. Depending on what you count as porn, it's 12 years if you count glamour photography modeling for glamour photography so basically i was in my fourth year at university doing my masters and i was a goth and i was kinky and i was having hot kinky sex with my partner and i had lots of dressing up clothes from being a goth and my friend who was a photographer was just like i've got some new lights i need to try them out would you like to come and model for me and i was just like why not you know and i liked it i'm a visual artist and i was doing a lot of art at that point in my life less so now the digital stuff has kind of taken over but i hadn't really realized i hadn't appreciated the extent to which modeling is an active compositional craft that you can actually create the image not only with the placement of your body but also your expressions your mood like even how you hold your hands and what your gaze is like how soft it is can kind of affect what genre the resulting image is i mean kind of lighting tells the difference between glamour and art nude but posture also does so the model has a lot of kind of creative input into the process i got the images back and i was like oh this is nice i like them and i liked it so i put them on a modeling website and was like can someone give me money for this and people did want to give me money for it so I did a bunch of modeling and started doing levels up to open leg so I guess that counts as porn Right. I actually regrew all my pubes to do a kind of 70s vintage hairy girl shoot. Pre-Pandora, I think I was Melanie in those days, which was a name given me by the photographer, because otherwise I was using my uh, passport name, which, you know, I don't do anymore. And yeah, then in kind of August, I'd moved to London, um, I'd left uni, and I wanted to make it as a painter, but I needed some money to pay the rent. So I thought I'd do a little shopping around for modelling jobs. And I got an email from someone saying, how do you feel about doing a simulated spanking shoot? like photo shoot like you wouldn't actually get spanked we'd just take pictures and I was like 
dude, I guess back all the time. This is completely within my comfort zone. Right. So I was like, yeah, sure. So I went along. I was slightly awkward. He, The photographer had fished up this sort of incredibly shy, socially anxious 70-year-old skinny man who'd never spanked a bum before or seemed like he hadn't and apparently he'd been recruited from some spanking forum or something so he wasn't being paid so it was a little bit mm, you know like that wasn't quite great it wasn't as good as like working with another professional but luckily he wasn't actually spanking me so I got some nice pics and I was like I want to be a spanking model so I kind of launched a website and applied to all of the websites that I've been perving on since <clears throat> far too young and asked, can I work for them? And they said, yes. So, and yeah, you launched your own website, right? I what, did, I yeah. Mean, that, that's very quick to do that, like to, to kind of go, right, that I've had a good experience with that. Like, right, I'll just launch my own website. Well, it took five kind of, years. Right. Yeah, so I did my first banking shoot as a sub-performer in 2006, hence the 10-year anniversary last year. And within six months, I had this kind of dodgy producer guy who was like, baby, I'm going to make you a star. You right. can have your own okay. website, right? And so I was kind of looking at this being like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But on the other hand, kind of thinking that would be kind of cool. So he said, I'll take care of the site and the billing and all the promotion if you want to produce the content. And I was like, great, well, I get complete autonomy. This is fantastic. So I went on the modelling forums that I was used to getting modelling work on and was like, any photographers want some time for prints doing some banking photography and just collected a few photo sets. I hadn't quite geared up to producing my first video yet, but the kind of producer disappeared and I never gave him the photo sets. So I kind of had this content that I'd shot that I wanted to be able to distribute at some point. And then um, somewhat belatedly, having got into porn aged, what, 22 Yeah, then over the next three years, I kind of became a feminist. Like, I hadn't really been very politically woke before that. But I was reading a lot of blogs by kind of gender studies professors in the States that I knew by a live journal and things, and they were kind of cluing me into a lot of stuff. And so I started to apply this gender stuff that I was learning about to the porn industry and the porn scene that I was working in. I was just like, oh, this could be better. (laughs) Um, And so I started to get some ideas about this, like, well, this needs doing and this definitely needs doing. And that's not my thing, but, you know, it needs doing. And after a while, that's not my thing, but it needs doing became, I think I need to do it. Right. So, like, one thing that I saw that was really absent was I'd noticed, because as a woman, uh, I, you know, I'm bisexual. I like men and women. And I, um, like many other women who read a lot of fanfic, I like male-male stuff. So a lot of the porn that I really enjoy is literary because I really like boy-boy spanking stuff. And I just wasn't finding that much boy-boy spanking stuff, which I liked. There are a couple of good boy-boy spanking sites that are very spanking-y, but most of the ones I was finding were kind of gay-sexy. And I wanted it to be more historical drama, costumes, getting in trouble, being punished, rather than like horny, modern-day, sexy kind of spanking. So I really saw a gap for male-male spanking porn made for women that kind of followed fan fiction narrative approaches and made it all about the drama and the emotions and, you know, lots of kind of hurt, comfort stuff. And I also noticed that most of the bloggers who promote porn in the spanking scene are straight men, straight white men, to be honest, and that they were kind of allergic to male performers, male submissive performers. Right, that makes sense. So, um, yeah, because if they accidentally saw a male bum, they might like it and then they might be gay. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, you'd get this kind of, these blogs called stuff like All About Spanking and it would be like girls getting spanked by men, girls getting spanked by women, the end. Right, right, right. (laughs) Or sometimes you'd get women spanking men but you'd never get the male-male stuff. That was segregated off to the gay side of the internet. And it was like, wait a minute, what if I want to look at that stuff? And also I noticed that the women spanking men stuff, it was usually to be cheap, doing exactly the same thing that that photographer had done on that first ever shoot with me, which is the women are professionals and they're very glamorous and they put themselves together, spent ages getting ready and they know how to act and they show their face and they're bringing a lot of vitality to it and they get paid good rates. Right. And the men are being recruited from basically clientele of dominatrixes and it's like, do you want a free session? Right. Okay? Right. So often they're not professionals, you know, like they're lovely guys. But they can't show their face half the time because they've got real jobs. Right. You know, and they aren't being selected on the basis of can you act? Like, do you have good screen presence? 
are women going to find you hot? Right, because that's it's... a very important element to have if you're going to be a porn performer who's a man. If You need to be attractive to people who are going to watch it, right? To mm, but the assumption is that it's only men who are going to watch it. Right. They're not really looking at the man. No, exactly, yeah. yeah. That, it proves that that is what's happening. But it's very strange to me that somebody who's trying to make money is not thinking about women as a as a potential as a, market yeah, a market right mm, a market exactly and you end up with bad porn that way because the dom is like posing around looking at the camera and ignoring this lump of flesh who's got a hood on and there's no connection right, right. and no intimacy right and so I was like no I want to watch two people who are really into each other I want eye contact I want to be able to relate to him and imagine myself in his place I want to know who they are as human beings like I want to give a damn basically right. um, and I was like well that's not going to happen unless you're paying for the men and I just did a little bit of asking around and they did not find a single studio in the UK that was paying male performers like at all like tops or bottoms right. and this is in spanking specifically right, right. and I think in BDSM more generally because the men who are in the scenes are either the owner or they're the camera guy or they're the owner's mate who also runs a website and they kind of prepare in each other's films right, for free right, right. sort of things you it's know kind of a hobby for them rather than an actual profession as well well which, or it's just their profession is... but they make their money off the profit rather ah, than... i see what you mean yeah yeah, yeah. um <laughs> yeah so i was like well somebody clearly needs to start recruiting hot young boys and hot like manly men and putting them in spanking films because i mean even as a i'm not just talking about sub men like i want to watch kind of hot male dom scenes with right. a really hot male dom right. that's got some kind of real energy going on and it makes you feel weak at the knees so I didn't think that was going to be me I think I remember Rob blogging about it and being like well I'm not really into male subs because you know I'm not a switch back in those old days <laughs> <laughs> and then it got to the point where I was feeling so certain that this needed doing it was like I'm just gonna have to and I started getting ideas for films so yeah I spent two years I think I bought my camera in 2009 directed my first shoot it went terribly I cried because I was so stressed and I didn't know what to do and nothing went to plan and like my um, friend who's behind the camera was so patient with me and my boyfriend who's in front of the camera with me was so patient with me but um, I learned a lot and it was agonising. We managed to kind of shoot for six to eight hours and squeeze like three short scenes out of it via me just faffing and not knowing what order to do things in. And then I kept on trying and kept on shooting. Right. I was lucky enough to be living above a boyfriend's business. And so I kind of did some trade. I did some graphic design and social media marketing for the business in exchange for living there rent free. So I had a low cash economy and I was able to not have to do much paid work and spend right. time building my website right, and editing right. all my content. And it, the business was a real ill pub. And so one of the things I did, my work for that business was to um, project manage and do a lot of the work for their refur- interior refur- refurbishment when we moved in. So I was kind of designing all the rooms with a view to shooting <laughs> porn in them, <laughs> which was really nice. Wow, so yeah, I then shot a lot of great. material there and I was able to use the venue like on the trade same trade basis. So basically I didn't have to save up a huge amount of capital like just enough to pay the performers. And did you have that, because when you're talking about it now, it's it's clear to me, and I I, I suspected this would be the case anyway from from seeing what you've done, Mm. uh, that you've got quite a a kind of business mind. You can think, like I'm very bad at thinking in those kind of ways. I want to be good, Mm. um, but I'm not. Was that something that you kind of had before you started doing all of this or did you just find it on on the job as you were going? Yeah, I think this was the first really businessy thing that I'd done. Like previously I'd been a freelancer and like I got jobs through partners and friends and word of mouth I hadn't really kind of put together you know a brand right, right. but I was I was trying to be super kind of strategic and professional like I wrote business plans and like three-year yeah. projections I toyed with the idea of applying for social enterprise funding and wrote like did set myself the exercise of writing the funding application and I didn't send it because I was like there's no way they're going to go for it but writing that funding application was really good for me and I did quite a lot of sort of concept development like working out what the mission of the site was and what my priorities were and what the USP was going to be. Right. So then I was able to launch in December 2011 and it was the first spanking site that incorporated all four genders under one roof. Um, sorry, all four gender orientations. Right. Um, so MM, FF, 
FM and MF. It, right from the start, had cisgender and transgender performers in the cast and quickly accumulated some non-binary performers too. So being queer inclusive was really core to the concept. It was very narrative driven, lots of storylines, like all of the spankings happen for a reason. There's quite a lot of drama and romance and adventure, lots of sort of historical, because that's what I'm into. Right. And I tried to make it lush. Like, I tried, on my low budget with my tiny Canon camcorder, you know, that I got off Amazon for a couple of hundred quid, I tried to make it as lush as possible with beautiful venues and beautiful costumes and actors who could really act. And I spent a lot of time carefully editing the photos to make it look really super rich and bright and gorgeous. And so the USPs were the gender, the gender thing, fair pay, equal pay for equal work. Right from the start, I was paying everyone the same, regardless of gender. Different fees for different jobs. So subs would get paid more than doms because you can work as a dom every day and you can't work as a sub every day. Like, right, you have you to know, have days off. You have yeah. to have days off. You get marked, you get sore, it's yeah. exhausting, you get adrenal crashes. Like, yeah. It's harder work. And the camera people would get paid kind of the same as the tops. So I had like one rate for everyone and then a higher rate for subs. But I didn't pay the male subs less or the female subs more. And I was trying to be diverse in other ways as well. Like As a feminist, I know, knew that diversity of representation was important in general. So it was important for me to have performers of size, performers of colour. That was a bit slow and is still not where I want it to be. I only have two performers of colour on the site today and it's not good enough but it's kind of one for the future is to to kind of fix that and I've got my eye on some potential new cast members (laughs) who are super hot so I think it's going to happen yeah that sounds like it's it's good to know that you haven't done well enough yet I think Mm. I I feel like that about lots of things I've done like I've tried to get better representation Mm. I've done some inroads to it Mm. there's still a a long way to go but that's okay like you just have to keep going in that direction yeah right that's the thing and trying and being accountable and right. owning your shit. Right. <laughs> right. Not being like, oh, no, it's not my fault I don't have any black people. Right, exactly. They're really hard to find. Exactly. Like, for some reason, I don't have any black friends. <laughs> just like, no, bullshit. <laughs> this is on right. me. I need to do right. better. So, yeah. And the other USP was explicit consent. So in spanking, you know, normally the fiction is very self-contained. And so I wanted to maintain that container of having this is a bubble in which we can do horrible non-consensual things to each other because it's fantasy and the performers are really into it but because the bubble is kind of sacrosanct and you don't want that to be intruded upon by reality too much because it's a fantasy and it's hot because you know because it's it's a fantasy fantasy. I kind of wanted to have a whole package of contextualising materials alongside that to make distinct the contrast between fantasy and reality so like if in the fantasy I'm playing some hapless Victorian urchin who's being thrashed in the workhouse by a horrible patriarchal figure that also comes with interviews with me about how this is my fantasy and that was my real boyfriend and it was so hot and I really wanted to do it and I wrote the scene and I've been fantasizing about this since I was like 12 years old and then some behind the scenes materials like outtakes showing what the atmosphere is like on set are people goofing around and having a nice time like if I call cut what happens, how are the other people about it. And then, like, this is even more important shooting with people who aren't me, because it's my website, so consent can sort of be assumed after a while, like, consent becomes established. But every time I shoot with someone new, I really, like, bend over backwards to make sure I've got their before and after interviews, their couple interview if they're working with their real-life partner. Like, get make sure I leave the cameras rolling as much as possible to get loads of nice outtakes of everyone having a nice time. And even some outtakes of people not having a nice time, like, sometimes shit happens. Right. You know, as long as I'm respecting people's privacy, like, I don't mind showing things that are a bit awkward or a bit hard. And then link to their blogs, link to their Twitter, you know, like, this is, this is fundamental, right? Like, listen to sex workers. Right. You know, if I'm the director, don't listen to me. I'm the boss. I don't know what I'm talking about. Listen to sex workers, listen to my performers. They'll be able to tell you whether it was consensual or not or whether they felt treated fairly. And so I was talking about this at a workshop I gave last night, but this is how you can tell whether porn is ethical or not is by following the performers and seeing what they have to say about it. Right, because like, yeah, words like ethical porn or uh, feminist porn, people find it hard to work out what that actually looks like. And actually, it, it probably looks very much like, you know, whatever porn you like, but with those elements that you're talking about, with explicit consent and with listening to sex workers and paying the performers mm, and all of that mm. being accountable, right? That's what ethics and feminism looks like. Transparency, right? I think. It's yeah. making this stuff easy to find, you know, acknowledging your performers as performers as professionals who are doing a job not pretending that they really are slave 1751 you know (laughs) who lives all the time on your slave farm and doesn't have any other work (laughs) like no acknowledge their professionalism be like oh it was so great shooting with Pamela she was an absolute professional like she was a star and then do the copy for the 
for the scene. So, and then link to them, right? So that your viewers, it's easy. They don't have to go and Google, like make it easy for them to find what your performers have had to say about you. And if your performers don't talk about your stuff, then maybe they didn't like working for you. In my experience, performers are really eager to promote scenes when they had a good time. And if they didn't have a good time, they don't bother interesting interesting mm. i have to i have to resist uh, thinking uh, that that also that rule applies to guests podcast. uh, on podcasts because i find that when people talk about themselves they, they often uh, don't promote it because they just have complicated feelings about themselves not really right. necessarily about the show hopefully i don't know maybe maybe they all hate it. well that might be true for performers too I, th- I, I have some performers who have literally never seen any of their stuff because right. they can't bear to right 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 yeah so yeah i mean there's always those different kind of nuances about how people approach it, but that sounds like a really great kind of mm. approach generally speaking like an ethical approach I mean did you like from the start you went in and set that up like ethically or did you learn as you went along some of the areas where you hadn't kind of quite thought through before like as you you know mm. the so I went in with those three visions right. that was from the start but there was other stuff that I had to improve on right the primary one or two areas are creating a good work environment on set uh so i kind of learned this as i went and maybe at the start i didn't provide great food or like i mean i think what did i come up with yesterday when i was giving this workshop on how to tell if porn is ethical so here are things that i didn't do when i first started shooting i didn't make sure i ran on time so i didn't respect their time i didn't make sure it stayed on schedule i didn't necessarily provide like food or snacks that people would want. Maybe I did. I don't remember. But, but like the food got a lot better by the end of the Dreams of Spanking Productions. It was lavish. It was like big salads and fruit and hummus and fresh bread and stuff. It's physical work, so you need to eat and have like you know energy and all of those. Right, stuff. and you need the sort of food that you don't mind eating and then bending over and <laughs> right, getting course. spanked and going over someone's lap. Like you don't yeah. want kind of greasy pizza or something. Right. The main thing I fell down on, and this was a really intense learning curve because I was editing all of my own scenes. I don't understand how directors who don't edit their own scenes ever learn how to be a better director but when you're having to correct your own mistakes in post you learn so what I realised was that I was bringing a lot of my own baggage my own shit my own feelings into the shoot and I would get emotional I would get stressed and that stress would create an unpleasant working environment for my performers right and so I had to learn the art of zipping up and doing some clearing beforehand and being warm and calm right, and compassionate right, right, and patient right. and not radiating stress. And if anybody else on set is getting stressed, like not absorbing it and not reflecting it, just being with it and de-escalating always and giving a lot of love and care and attention to the performers. That was that was kind of a hard curve to learn. And one of the reasons it was a hard curve to learn is that I was working a lot with my ex, Thomas Cameron, and he and I had a pretty difficult relationship in some ways. And I feel totally cringy now thinking back on shoots where he and I would be having arguments in front of performers right. and just creating this incredibly toxic right, right. space and then expecting them to give good performances and be vulnerable and you know submit to him or in that right, space and right. it's like no that's not okay so I can tell you that like watching yourself do this shit when you're editing is so painful that it's like you never repeat that mistake right. <laughs> Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Mm. So I think those those are, are, are lessons as well that I think are kind of really applicable across the board. I mean, probably mm. everything that you're talking about is applicable outside of porn as well. Right, to you be know. any professional yeah. environment. Yeah, I mean, and, and certainly as a as a director of like theatre or whatever when I've done that like that's exactly what I've had to do is like keep my shit out mm, of it when mm. I've had a personal relationship with someone don't let that come yeah. out in front of people uh, and I've certainly made those kind of mistakes so I can I can empathize with that you made that porn for a while and it was kind of going well and then there's been over the last kind of couple of years Mm. things have changed in the landscape of of porn right in the UK at least yeah in the UK they have it was coming for a while and I was a little bit head in sand about it actually at VOD the authority for TV on demand were the online porn regulator from 2012 I think and I remember going to some meetings with other producers and then saying oh what are we going to do about VOD and me just kind of tuning out and being like I don't want to hear it you know, because um, I was doing quite a lot of anti-censorship and anti-kind of authoritarian police state activism right. um, in my, the other half of my life. Right. And I knew about the chilling effect 
right? Which is where they bring in a law and it's pretty vague and it's not clear how it's going to be enforced. And so everybody trips over themselves backwards to try and comply with it. And because they don't know how bad it's going to be, they like overguess. And so everyone ends up censoring themselves 10 times more than the government would actually censor them. Right. Or people are just like, oh, well, that's all complicated. I'm not even going to go near it. And people just don't even bother trying. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do at job for them. So the law came in. So there's been two laws. The first one was the Audiovisual Media Services AVMS regulations, which came in in December 2012. And it's pretty simple, but massive. They changed the rules around porn so that the same things that would be illegal offline were now illegal online as well. And UK obscenity law is a rich, tangled, complex thing. And we probably don't have time to completely unpack it. (laughs) But uh, fundamentally, it comes down to the BBFC classification guidelines. The BBFC won't classify certain kinds of material and it's illegal to distribute unclassified material in the UK. And what they will refuse to classify is based on the case law in the Obscene Publications Act. So it's what would be termed obscene under UK law. Right. Um, and so now anything that the BBFC would refuse to classify is suddenly banned online. And this has been fine for like 15 years and now suddenly it's not okay. And Miles Jackman, the um, top UK obscenity lawyer, he won like several awards defending cases that were brought under the OPA in 2012. So he was kind of very expert on it. He published a list on his blog of the things that this covers and it was like most BDSM, most consensual BDSM. Right. So everything from face sitting to some trampling and wrestling to like urethral sounding. I mean, that's niche. Like (laughs) any BDSM or spanking that leaves marks full bondage with a gag because apparently you can't withdraw consent when you've got your hands and your ankles tied and you're gagged um, which is pretty ignorant because it's very possible to talk through a gag and there's lots of other ways of showing consent like you can be holding a ball that you drop or so many ways and fisting which is legal to do but apparently illegal to right to depict I mean, it particularly it particularly penalises BDSM, but it also generally is kind of very patriarchal and kind of anti queer people in its in its application, right? Because certain acts that are about women's pleasure are not allowed, yeah. whereas acts about men's pleasure. I mean, I'm using these binary cis like I'm talking about cis people, and also in a very binary way. But you know, can we say can we say genital words on your podcast? Yes. Okay, <laughs> that makes it easier then. So yeah, so you're probably thinking of ejaculation right so like cunt ejaculation is not permitted under the current guidance on the opa because water sports urination so you can show someone weeing but you can't show them weeing on someone and you can't show someone licking or consuming the wee right and so because uh, according to the bbfc there's no way for the viewer to tell the difference between urination and ejaculation when it's from a cunt ejaculation is covered by the same thing it's not that ejaculation is banned it's just that it could be piss and so Right. They, um, there was actually a brilliant case in the 90s of feminist porn director Anna Spann shot a female squirting uh, film and submitted it to the BBFC for classification. And they were like, no, because it might be we. And she was like, right. So she got the female performer to come back in, got a sample of her ejaculate, <laughs> wrote, uh, got together a dossier of testimonies of everybody who was involved with the shoot, being like, I was there, it was definitely, definitely square, it wasn't piss, packaged it all together and sent it to the BBFC, being like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's weird. <laughs> it's, it's, the whole thing is weird, isn't it? Because it's like, what is what exactly is supposed to be so bad about piss anyway? Like, like I know, right? Like, I don't even get I It's don't totally get not it. harmless. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But she got that classified. The BBFC were just like, oh, hell, <laughs> we were in trouble. Okay, you know, yeah, we're not yeah. going managed to stick to our guns on this one so they let her have it so yes a female ejaculation but obviously like bukake is fine um so this is it and like fisting is a particularly important act for like a lot of queer queer people a lot of members of the queer community yeah like it's non-phallic it's non-gendered yeah very very kind of culturally important in a lot of queer communities and the whole face sitting thing like the reason you're not allowed to do face sitting or the extent to which you're not allowed to do face sitting is uh, in as much as it's asphyxiation. Right, because, yeah, right. Um, wh- whereas you can be choked with cock. Right, right. And that's fine. <sighs> so, yeah, so it does come out looking very patriarchal and very heteronormative. And that wasn't... It's not kind of intended. It's but, not designed. But it's within society, like, that we, we have a heteronormative yes. and kind of patriarchal society. So, of, of course, our laws are going to basically uphold those 
those values in some ways. Which, yeah. You know, which is not to say that we, they should. We should change those laws. But, I yeah. think obscenity law has historically been very homophobic. Right. Like, um, right. gay men are the most likely to be prosecuted under the OPA, right, for example. Right, right. And, um, you know, the last case of someone being prosecuted for assault in a consensual kink context was the Spanner case, which was a homophobic prosecution by a known homophobic police dude, top honcho, who raided this gay BDSM club in Manchester and prosecuted all these guys who were doing consensual BDSM. And it's like, you know, they don't go into people's homes if they're married couples. Right. It's... Right. Yeah. And then recently there's kind of the Age Verification uh, Digital Economy Act mm. that's come in, right? And that's yeah. also causing porn makers a lot of problems. Right? Yeah, it is. I thought I'd got away scot-free because I decided when the AVMS came in not to comply. I was like, I can't not have spanking that leaves marks. Like, right. the whole principle of this website is to be authentic. Right. So I kind of stuck it out and I got into a lot of trouble. I made a big stink in the process and raised a lot of money um, doing some naughty things. I did some charity canings and released the videos for free under Creative <laughs> Commons to raise money for Backlash, who are the organisation that defends sexual right. freedom in the UK. Right. Um, I did not like that. Um, but I was glad that they watched them because there were loads of interviews about how terrible the law was. So, you know, it's good that they educated themselves. So, yeah, I got investigated. It's very traumatic, actually. Oh, sorry. I had to take my site offline for 10 months while my appeal was being considered. And then after 10 months, I found out I'd won my appeal and I was able to relaunch. But since then, you know, the business never recovered. Right. Like, you know, I'd spent years building up that kind of traffic. Right, you know? it was a very successful business, right? Yeah, Making it just got to the point where it was feminist. successful. Yeah, exactly. And mm. it's like somebody makes ethical feminist porn, like... Every time there's any debate about porn, everyone's like, there's no such thing as these, as, you know, where's ethical porn? Where is mm. feminist porn? It's not there. It's all bad. And actually, somebody does something, carves out something mm. really mm. important. And then, it, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry that this happened to you because it's just... It happens know, all the time. And, like, criminalisation is a real right. problem and for it, feminist pornographers. It affects everybody as well, these kind of things. But I'm not, I don't, I'm not into... Uh, personally into kind of spanking or BDSM mm. but like I'm aware that the, the, the laws around all of this stuff affect everybody not just uh, people making it like it just it gets oh it goes into all, all, yeah, all areas it's fundamental so isn't it it comes down to basic in, basic issues of like autonomy bodily autonomy right consent like consent being considered as a moral principle right the worst thing about the interpretation of the OPA that was enshrined in the AVMS was that consent was irrelevant didn't matter whether it was consensual or not Right. And even with the Digital Economy Act, you hear people talking about violent porn and the need to stop children seeing it. And the, it sounds like the parliamentarians literally don't know the difference between domestic violence recordings and consensual kink. Yeah. They're talking about all yeah, of it, it as if it was a recording of a crime. And it's like, guys, that's already illegal. Right. Like, we don't need to make that extra illegal. It's already illegal to assault someone. Right. And put a video on the internet. So, like, they didn't even. So it seems like they didn't even know that it might be possible for someone to consent to violent sex right right and it's it's very it's a very strange kind of it's it's just generally i mean it's not strange it's 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 exactly what i would expect in mm, a way but mm. at the same time I, I just find it really hard to understand how people can like look at these two very different things and see them as the same like it's it's very strange there's a brand of feminism which climbs into bed with conservative christianity in attempting to sort of control people's bodily autonomy and their sexual yeah, activity. Right. And it's a really unholy alliance, you know, because you'd think that feminism would be about dismantling structures of oppression, whereas those Christian organisations that are against porn are also very homophobic and very patriarchal. So it's kind of weird to me that they even do that, but you see kind of them funding each other's stuff all the time. And I see this strand of kind of, you know, this post-Puritan prudishness in a lot of that kind of it's called radical feminism but it's not very radical you know yeah. that kind of conservative feminism but the other name for it which is quite on point is carceral feminism right yeah yeah carceral feminism is the is the term i'm most like mm. uh comfortable using or mm. you know it, it depends if, if you know if the person's like exclusionary of, of, of sex workers or of trans people I've got no problem calling them you know turfs or swerfs yeah, or whatever yeah. um, 
but at the same time, like there are radical feminists, like Bell Hooks defined it as a radical feminist. Right. Bell Hooks is one of my like feminist heroes. Like I don't want to write radical feminism off. It's when, but what carceral feminism mm. means is that you know is kind of colluding with the state with kind of authority uh, and kind of seeing prison imprisonment and and restriction as yeah, as yeah. kind of the good things and it's a very do. white middle class feminism right. and it's it's punching down because it's throwing people from marginalized communities under the bus you know it's throwing queer homeless teenagers who have been kicked out under the bus it's throwing trans folk who are doing sex work because they need cash right now or they need to save up for hormones under the bus it's throwing people of colour under the bus often the people in sex work who most need legal rights right. are the ones who are the most marginalised right. um, and it's the only kind of work that anybody who has a body can do if they need cash today right. and they don't have any documents right. so migrants for example is another marginalised group who get really thrown under the bus by castle feminism and I just think that my feminism it tries to punch up right. <laughs> like fundamentally right. I want to disrupt structures of oppression rather than uphold them yeah no absolutely <laughs> Mm. And and gender in general, your work your work has been within gender. Like it's it, you know, sex is kind of very connected to that, and you've made uh, work that's inclusive of different genders, different combinations of mm. gender. Mm. Like so, so, where are you kind of within your your journey through gender? Mm, that's a really good question. It's a really timely question. So I'm I'm queer, and I've always identified as queer since before the launch of Dreams of Spanking. I guess pansexual is the more informative word but I like queer as a political identity <laughs> but um, I've always had well not always but for for many years I've had lovers who are trans and non-binary and I've always appreciated people who dared to disrupt the binary and right. you know there's so many problems with the current model we have of gender you know I, the, way you, the more you think about it the more weird it is that we kind of categorise babies at right. birth based on the appearance of one of their body parts and then assign them this set of expectations preferences jobs and prospects based on something about as arbitrary as whether they have an innie or an outie belly button right. <sighs> never mind getting into corrective surgery which right. you know is often done without parental knowledge even like it's fucking violent yeah absolutely so people who are willing to be like well actually neither I've always kind of had my respect. And yeah, so I've actually been reaching a kind of personal process with this for the last year or so as well. I remember staying with my friend Zoe Montano in Australia and having a conversation about this. And I think one of the people in our group was non-binary. And I remember thinking, well, of course I'm a bit non-binary, but isn't everyone, you know? Like, I don't need to take up space in the movement. I don't feel the need to shout about it. Right. And I don't know what changed, really. Like, a year ago, I got together with a new partner, Felix, who was just coming into their gender queerness. Like, hadn't had a partner who really saw it before, but I instantly was just like, oh, no, you're definitely, you're definitely non-binary, aren't you? <laughs> and was really honouring and celebrating their femininity and their masculinity. And I think having those conversations with them really helped some stuff settle in my head. And having these really powerful experiences of having same-sex sex with them as well, like, much more so than I've ever had with a man or a woman, feeling really gay with them, like, definitely that we're the same gender. And that was just telling, because it was like, well, if you're non-binary, then maybe I'm non-binary. So, yeah, I haven't really officially told the world this as Pandora Blake yet. So I guess this is a, I guess this is a kind of coming out. Right. The first time. <laughs> um, but a few months ago, I did a Facebook post using my other name and well I've actually changed my other name so there's been a lot of change going on in my life kind of behind the scenes but started using a more androgynous name and changed my pronouns on Facebook which is obviously <laughs> it's all official now I've got they them on Facebook I do have a bank card that says Mooks as well so I've been gradually asking people to respect um, my pronouns preferences and it's starting out just in the queer scene with people who I knew were going to be chill about it and who were familiar with it but then you know, when I came out on Facebook, that entailed telling my parents and they have been so great. That's so That's great. The first thing they did was they phoned me up and they were like, so what do we call you if not our daughter? Help us get our language right. And it was like, oh, my God, that's such that's a good great. question. That's, a great that's question. such a good question. Yeah. So we brainstormed it and we, it's really hard, actually. Right. Yeah, um, no, it's Yeah, we, the best we could come up with was our eldest. But that doesn't solve the problem for everyone. So <laughs> right. I'm not satisfied with it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, does, it definitely doesn't help only, only children. <laughs> no, exactly. Or middle children. Right, right, right. I was like, you can call me your spawn or your offspring. And they were like, mm, no, <laughs> it's not really us. 
<laughs> so I've been out as genderqueer for a few months right. and it's been really, really awesome. And um, I've been sitting on how to do it in my porn persona because I have this kind of hang up that a lot of the people who follow me are into my femininity. Right. And that if I challenge that, I'll lose a lot of... Well, that's an, yeah, that's an interesting... Yeah, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Like, like earlier on when when you were talking about making porn, you said as a woman. I think it was a phrase you used, but obviously now you're non-binary, so that's and I'm not a woman, exactly. And I heard myself say that. Like, I get my pronouns wrong all the time, (laughs) right? But also, it's very interesting because although I'm not, I don't identify as a woman. So, just I guess I should just explain what being non-binary means. I guess so. Yeah. So I don't, I don't feel female, and I don't feel male. Like, I do feel trans. I do feel like I identify as transgender. I'm a gender other than the one I was assigned at birth. But I don't feel the need to take hormones and transition. I have days where I feel very boy. Like, I have this really strong gay twink streak in me that um, is like a subby twink gay boy who's a big nerd and likes being cuddled by his daddy. And yeah, I spend a lot of time in that place. But I also have days when I just feel really queer and really nothing in particular or like everything at once or something else entirely. And then there are also times when I connect with my feminine energy. Um, So I think because a lot of the sex work I do, you know, sex work is very gendered. Most people's sexual fantasies are very gendered. They want people to be playing a masculine or a feminine role, like very one or very the other. And so I end up performing kind of hyper-feminine, like mummy or headmistress type or like sex pot type roles with clients in role plays all the time. And I guess that uses up like my spoons for being a female. Right. Because like I do have some of that in my identity and it does feel authentic sometimes for me to do that. And sometimes it feels like drag. Right. Yeah, so um, I feel like in the rest of my life, when I'm not being Pandora Blake, I don't really have any energy for being very feminine. Right. But maybe if I was doing less gendered roles at work, right, there'd be more space for that to come out. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and I guess like you're generally in a so you're you're you you are you you're moving towards kind of I guess you're you're identifying as genderqueer and that's kind of a trans identity mm. and you're also in generally in a in a sort of state of transformation generally right because your yeah. your business is changing and mm. and all of that stuff i mean i like to capture people in those moments yeah. they're, they're great guests to have because when you're kind of in a period of transformation you can have like really interesting mm. insights on your like what's going on in life but but it's also it's not necessarily an easy uh, experience <laughs> right no i remember having this total overwhelm moment in June of just like literally everything in my life is just on the table up for grabs like I'm literally examining everything I was carrying with me and being like is this still serving me do I still want it so just to give you a brief snapshot in the last year I've changed my name like the non-Pandora name I'm thinking about changing the Pandora name but that's tough because there's a lot of good brand like right. built up and I don't want to lose it you've got to change all the stationery <laughs> I know right and it's just like I want to self-publish a book and I don't know if I'm going to be able to make any sales if it's not the familiar name right so I think I might have to just be Fandora Blake for a bit longer right. but I'd love a more androgynous name I'm thinking of being Blake that that works right. in fact in fact Pandora Blake in itself is is has is subtly non-binary like has a subtle non-binary element I guess in so it, I guess. I'm not saying you should uh, like Meg John. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I'm still sitting on the fence with changing officially to just being Blake. But, I mean, Stoya has made five-letter porn names cool, so I reckon I might be able to get away with it. <laughs> right. But I think the book's going to have to be Pandora Blake, so maybe I'll just use two at the same time for a while. Changed my non-Pandora name, changed my pronouns, broke up a 12-year relationship, which is very super painful. Right. Got together with a new partner who has become a primary kind of life partner type person. And as a result of, like, you know, when you do the merge with a new partner like taking up new hobbies. I've started doing Tai Chi. Um, I've kind of got into a lot of new stuff and uh, I've broken up with Dreams of Spanking. I wrote a very, very painful breakup letter to Dreams of Spanking in May, uh, realising that um, that was no longer working for me. So looking to the future, I'm considering lots of different options about the kind of work I want to do. Like, do I want to keep on doing porn forever? One of the models of living a good life that I like is the the 11 lifetimes model. Do you know it? No. So this theory is that it takes seven years to become, to develop mastery in something. Like, not obviously, like you can carry on doing Tai Chi your entire life and, and always learn, but to become good at it. 
And so if you start when you're 11 and you live till you're 80, you get 11 goes to develop mastery right, or something. Okay. And each of these is your kind of lifetimes. And like my porn lifetime is so way past its like... That makes sense. You know, I've just been doing yeah. this for such a long time, like 11 years, 12 years. I'm ready to do something else. I know what you mean. I mean, I've been in London for about that amount of time and I'm feeling similarly myself there's comes a time when you just you've spent your life doing one thing you mm. need to do another like it's not necessarily that you don't like what you no, used to do but i don't want to do the same thing forever yeah. god that would be so yeah, boring exactly. i want to exactly i'm so hungry to learn and develop and grow and try new things so yeah so i've been kind of um i've just come back from a four-day course training uh, as a facilitator which was hosted by the people who run cuddle party which I don't know if you know it. It's um, a facilitated. It's what it sounds like. It's a facilitated cuddle party. I, I liked the sound of yeah. it. Yeah, just the just the name made me smile. So. Yeah, my t- teacher Adam Pullman describes it as an advanced communication workshop disguised as a pajama party. <laughs> <laughs> so over the three hours, you'll spend probably the first hour and a half or two hours doing a bunch of consent exercises. The rules of cuddling have to be adhered to at every cuddle party, and they're really good rules for life. Like say yes if you mean yes, and say no if you mean no. It's just so. Simple simple and so hard um right, really hard. <laughs> yeah and so yeah. you can take those rules and apply them to the rest of your life so i really like cuddle party and um i'm not qualified to run them yet but i'm considering certifying and meanwhile i have just spent four days honing my facilitation skills and i really like it so i've done a couple of workshops now um i did one last night in shoreditch on it's called feminist porn how to find it and feel good watching it and I had a hundred people show up, including ten journalists. And people said they laughed at my jokes, and they said great things, and they yeah. asked great questions. So I feel like that went really well. One of the people from my course came to support me. Like, it was nice. so nice, That's wasn't nice. it? So and she said some nice things. So I'm thinking, like, yeah, this seems to be something I have a hunger for that right. I like doing. Something that is a bit different from what I have been doing that might be compatible with different life changes. And so yeah, I'm thinking of. I've already been giving some workshops with my partner actually at different events I've been going to kind of just for our friends for free and they've gone really well and I think we might start offering them in London and trying to make a you know make a bit of money a from thing, it yeah. yeah make it a thing that sounds mm. great I'm just gonna I think my the fridge has managed to get noisy all of a sudden <laughs> I always have that at home with different Switch electronics yeah 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 you would you'd be very familiar with the problems with uh, mm. of fridges um so we, we we're getting towards the end of the conversation so and I think that the last question I ask will cover the last area that we haven't really touched on in in the kind of things that we're going to talk about mm. today. so it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you uh, today the last question that I ask oh thank you thank, <laughs> uh, although but, I haven't found out much about you no you, you haven't that's true and it, like often I, I do reveal a lot in in these conversations but sometimes I don't you know mm. it's, it's it just have to listen to past episodes. the way it goes um but also I've, I've I guess I've been slightly aware like we're trying to do it kind of streamlined today so I don't want to go off into mm. a big tangent mm. and then find out that I can't talk to you about something else but the last question that I ask everybody is do you have anything to plug and so I believe you do I, feel, I believe you're at least writing a book right uh, yeah I would I, I want to start writing a book so I um, what I want to plug is my Patreon right um, so I for people who don't know Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that enables artists and creators to get paid either per piece that they publish by their fans or on a monthly basis to support them generally doing stuff and the stuff that I'm doing on an unpaid basis is mostly political campaigning around obscenity law online censorship internet freedom civil liberties, digital rights and sex work law. Right. Um, and so I can't really put out a thing each month that I can get paid for. So it's a monthly pledge basis and people can sign up for as little as $1. There's a bunch of perks, which should be quite enticing. And it enables me at the moment, I'm able to spend like several days a month working on campaigning stuff, which is really important and has paid off a lot already like with the digital economy act before that became law it was going to be much much worse than it was in various ways and we ran a really long like concerted campaign like lobbying the house of commons lobbying the house of lords doing lots of public awareness raising and we managed to get an amendment through which kind of made it less bad than it would have been so this is having a real difference yeah 
I mean, that's what I mean. I've watched you doing that, and mm. I massively admire what you do. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm very well connected to good people. Um, Miles Jackman and I have been working together a lot, and people right. from the Open Rights Group and Backlash. So, yeah, and so at the moment, I'm kind of in conversation with the Department of Culture, Media, and Sport around age verification, and I want to start talking to the BBFC when they're finally ready to start talking to people about how to make this terrible policy, which we haven't even got into, but you can read more about it if you look at my Patreon, less bad than it might be because it could be really really bad if it's done as badly as it could possibly be and that seems currently like the way it's going to go unless we intervene right so people who care about this stuff can support me and i would really like that and yeah one of the other things i'd like to start doing with that time if i can get a little bit more funding is develop this book which i've had sitting since 2014 but the odd investigation completely kind of kicked it out of my priority list Um, so I had this idea in December 2014 I've been sitting on it since then and like it arrived in one go I was hanging up my laundry and it just unfurled in my head this entire 14 chapter structure and I was like I'm going to start making notes and within like two hours I had an A4 page on each of the 14 chapters and I knew what the entire thing was going to be and then I wrote a bunch of words for the first chapter so I think I've got 12,000 words already so I've started. That's good. <laughs> but like, I literally haven't done any more since then. Right. And I really want to. I, like every conversation, it sometimes feels that every conversation I have relates to the things that I'm talking about in this book. So it's about our fantasies and erotic desire. And it's about the relationship between fantasy and reality. And is there such a thing as a problematic fantasy? How can we wrangle our own moral compass around our fantasies? What fantasies it's comfortable for us to have and what comfortable fantasies are comfortable for us to enact? Um, and how the process of enacting one's fantasies can change them. So it's kind of half philosophical, political discussion about these issues and, you know, is it possible to be submissive and feminist? And about kind of exploring, you know, our shadow, like um, our erotic imaginations as an outlet for our shadow and how that could be really healthy, but also what's necessary to make it healthy, like what conditions need to be met. And the other half is kind of erotic memoir, talking about my experiences of growing up as a kinky weirdo and then being a (laughs) pornographer and how kind of my core erotic theme has evolved through my life, partly in response to my actualising a lot of my fantasies by making films of them. Brilliant. Mm. I mean, I, I want to read it already. Yeah. Uh, but it's not written yet, so no. I, I can't. No, so, I need, so if you want it to exist, you can donate to my picture. Yeah, everybody, everybody make sure you do, because, uh, you know, just, just on my account, because I want to read the book. <laughs> um, and the last thing that I mm. ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Of course. Well, thank you very much, everybody who's been listening. Um, I hope this has been interesting and informative. And um, I have no idea what it's made you think about, but feel free to hit me up on Twitter if there's anything you want to share. Oh, yeah. Where are you on Twitter? Um, All my social media is the same. It's just at Pandora Blake. (laughs) So it should be quite easy to find. Brilliant. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. (laughs) It was great speaking to Pandora, and I'm very honoured that they chose to come out about being genderqueer on this podcast. I believe that in conjunction with this podcast going out, they're going to be talking about it in other places, like their blog and in pictures and things like that. So look out for those kind of things. Also, the next Smut Slam is happening next Wednesday. That's Wednesday the 11th of October at the Dog Star in Brixton. And the theme, because it's October, is Spooky Sex. So come along and have a great night of sex-related true storytelling next Wednesday. And I'll be there, so do say hello. And you can hear my solo show, What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. As a podcast, it's available on the Stand Up Tragedy podcast feed. It's the last podcast that went out on that feed. You can also read more about the show over on its website, mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. As well as making Getting Better Acquainted, I also co-produce and, I guess, star in the magical realist audio drama podcast, The Family Tree. In order to keep making it and to make season two as good as we want it to be, we need your help. So if you can afford to, then please do consider signing up to our Patreon appeal. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like Getting Better Acquainted on Facebook. And you can find Getting Better Acquainted on iTunes, SoundCloud, those kind of places. But remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.